This podcast delivered by Australia Post. Whatever you're sending, they make it easy to pay and print your shipping labels from anywhere. And if you're in a metro area, they can come and pick up your parcels with My Post Business. Find out more and go to ozpost.com.au slash podcast. Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and I'm here as always with David Scott. How are you, David? I'm great, Paul. Thank you, and uh, great to be back again. Uh, our guest this week, uh, we're um, delighted to have on the show Justin Fabo, who is currently a senior economist at Alpha Beta, an economic consultancy uh, based here in Sydney. A really interesting company. Uh, it was founded by Kevin Rudd's former economic advisor, Andrew Charlton. Uh, and Justin has had a pretty illustrious uh, career in financial markets uh, in a range of uh, different places, including the RBA. Uh, Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to be here. Uh, look, it, we've had another, get straight into it, another blockbuster uh, monthly employment report um, from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Uh, David, do you want to talk us through the numbers? Um, you know, this is now starting to look like a bit of a trend that Australian job creation is going okay. Yes, there wasn't uh, very much not to like about the report. Uh, unemployment at a more than four-year low, 42,000 jobs created, of which more than them uh, were actual full-time roles. Uh, hours work spiked. Um, one of the few uh, flies in the ointment, you might say, would uh, would be underemployment and underutilisation in the, uh, the labour force, which has been contributing to what we're seeing with uh, with low wage pressures recently. That is still fairly elevated compared to historic norms, but all things being equal, it's, uh, it's a very solid report card. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, Justin, uh, you look very closely at the at the labour market on, on a regular basis. Um, uh, what are you seeing when you look at this? Yeah, I love the labour market stuff. Um, rich source of data and gives you everything. So um, what are we seeing? Um, I guess over the last couple of months, really been shaking our head, probably a few months ago actually, at the weakness in the labour market numbers coming out of the ABS. So looking at that and going, on that one hand, is that telling us something about the economy that the other indicators weren't? Um, or were they basically just just wrong and would see some catch-up to the rest of the indicators? So I think now um, there's been a bit of indication there that we've seen this catch-up in, in the jobs growth numbers and the unemployment rate to some extent to some of these more positive um, numbers. So I don't think anyone can get super excited about the strength in the numbers because there probably is that element of catch-up and, and telling us what we already knew, really. The question now is about is about going forward. Can this be sustained for more than the next couple of months in terms of the strength in the numbers? That's the key question for me. Because with uh, the unemployment rate at 5.5, um, that still basically means an awful lot of slack. Um, and um, some of those what appear to be now increasingly looking like embedded structural challenges for the economy um, would persist, even if you did get it down a couple of more uh, uh, basis points from there. Yeah, and I think that's right. I mean, um, the RBA put out a useful piece today as well on their estimate of the uh, so-called Nehru, that horrible term, i.e. The, the level of unemployment where you start to get a bit more inflation, or well, that's the theory anyway, and that's around 5% is their best guess. So we're not, we're not massively away from that, that full employment rate. But as we've seen in other countries, that's a little bit meaningless at the moment. We're not getting the meaningful pickup in wages growth or inflation. So there's something different going on this time, you know, globally. Some of it's probably structural as well as cyclical. So, I mean, I think here, though, I think David's already kind of hit the nail on the head. The underemployment numbers, um, you can't really ignore anymore. They're still, they came down a little bit 
Um, yeah, and, and, th- and thanks to an upward revision to the prior quarter's data as well. So it's uh, you know it was 8.7 previously, it got revised up to 8.9. This quarter was 8.8, so right. still much of a muchness, but uh, it's still very elevated compared to what it is. And yeah. unfortunately, it's still trending higher. Yeah, I mean the hope the hope there is, and I guess this is my hope as well that. Yeah, normally, historically, the underemployment rate tends to – it's always higher than the unemployment rate. It tends to move with the unemployment rate. That hasn't happened in the last couple of years. So, again, again, there's that, that conundrum in the labour market that something different is happening this time and, and probably is a little bit structural, that firms are clearly shifting around people's hours of work a lot more than the heads, um, than they did in the past. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that uh, we published today, just um, some research from uh, Macquarie Global Equities, there's a guy based in Hong Kong called Victor Schwetz, um, who tends to write very provocative uh, sort of takes on. Uh, was this, uh, was, this on a, what, was this the gentleman who said that we should go to Mars? Yes, to go and, yes okay, he did. Go. He said that, that, that there's so much. His theory. This was last year, but his theory is that there's so much capital roaming the world now, looking for a home. That basically, let's get a Mars program up and off the ground. Get a whole bunch of nations behind it, maybe the G7. Um, and what you'll do is you'll create. Uh, entire new industries out of that. You'll get technological breakthroughs. Um, so his the whole argument was, we are ready, which I thought was a very funny way for you know the Macquarie analyst to put it, but we are ready to hear a speech from maybe the President of the United States that we're going to go to Mars within 15 years or, or whatever it is. Um, but his take on, on what's happening in developed economies is that uh, through um, main, well, technology is compounding this issue with what he called refers to as financialization, over financialization, so low ro- low um, uh, rates uh, globally, um, being implemented by central banks over a period of decades, uh, to where we are now, uh, and we'll talk about the Fed a, a little bit later. Um, finally, at sort of one point two five percent, you know, surprise, um, but. Um, uh, these low rates um, created this vast amount of capital, but then you also have all of this technological disruption, uh, which he says appears to be unlimited in its reach, right? So that you transform, you know, territory by territory, you transform the retail sector, uh, service provision, uh, manufacturing supply chains, um, and the equations for all of those kind of things. So his theory is that basically if you kind of use the old frameworks for analyzing um, how, like the industrial uh, era frameworks for analyzing how things like the Nairu, mm. uh, where they should be, that those tools are no longer fit for the task of, of, of thinking about how things are going to look in the future. Yeah, and that, that certainly might be the case in the short term as well. So um, on this kind of automation technology story, we've, um, we've been spending a couple of months actually looking at this issue for a, a client of ours, and, um, and ultimately, I guess, we our conclusion is more positive than, than most people talk about. But it's certainly been the case that through history when you have these kind of uh, these positive productivity shocks, technology shocks, automation, whatever you want to call them, that initially in that, that first initial period, maybe the first few years, um, they can be a bit negative for um, for the labour market and wages and, and households and consumers. It's ultimately then once it all settles down and people's spending patterns change and, and the pattern of the economy changes that you get that that new jobs growth that we don't even know about mm. more more down the track, um, but it, so maybe that's the case at the moment that some of these these effects are a, a bit bigger than than maybe we realise because it's happening in real time we don't we don't know but I, I do wonder too if some of this is still sh- cyclical 
you know, yeah. we're still kind of at the tail end of the shadow of a pretty bad financial crisis. The reaction to that financial crisis we've never seen before, so we can't put our hand on our heart and say we really know how things are playing out because the reaction from central banks was so different to the past. That's done some weird stuff, as you say, to financial asset prices. Um, what's to say it hasn't done weird things to consumer price inflation, business behaviour, consumer behaviour? My guess is it has. Yeah. It's had this huge shadow hanging over all those things. Yeah, one of the things we touched on last week is that there's still maybe a bit of sort of a PTSD uh, overhang from, from the global financial crisis so that when people now see a little bit of risk on the horizon, yeah. they pull, they'll pull households particularly, uh, will pull back spending because yeah. uh, they're a little bit uh, concerned about how it might play out uh, because they've seen something small, what apparently looks like the failure of a small bank, uh, on the other side of the world can very quickly uh, mm. arrive uh, on your shores. Yeah. Mm. And that, that might be the case, particularly in Australia, where there's still a lot of other stuff going on in the economy, that the economy is still kind of muddling along. But, I mean, in the other economies, look at things like consumer confidence, they've recovered a lot um, in the, the major developed economies. Um, it's not too bad here. Um, consumer spending in those economies is, by and large, pretty good as well. It's just that it's weak here. So there are some issues that are... Um, bespoke to the Australian economy at the moment, and, and a lot of that is around that our wages growth is pretty crappy mm. relative still to, to these other economies, even though it's not you know going bank, gangbusters in these other places. Yeah, absolutely. And you still go, like we talk a lot about the overhang um, from in, in terms of the CapEx um, forward-looking data and you know the, um, the RBA saying that it looks like this um, negative, um, the drag on CapEx and business investment from the end of the, the, the mining investment uh, mm. boom uh, appears to be finally sort of uh, resolving itself because there's not any further for it to fall. Um, and in fact, some some mines are now starting to uh, crank up again and maybe they're buying some more machinery, etc. and a bit more exploration going on. Which is and more importantly, non-mining non non uh, sectors are also expected to go and pick up their spending, at least from the, uh, what you've seen in the, uh, in the estimates that are being offered. Yeah, um, so we're getting a bit of that, and um, you know maybe we're starting to see now finally the first signs of this reconciliation. We've seen an, an important divergence um, over the last maybe twelve months. You guys can tell me it might, it might be more, but this divergence between business confidence and how businesses are, are, are thinking about the future in the surveys, mm. uh, and then consumer confidence, particularly in the last six months, uh, which has just been falling uh, steadily. Yeah, I think um, it's certainly something that happens from time to time. You get this divergence. Uh, it depends on which business survey you're looking at. If you look at NABS, which is an excellent one, um, certainly the confidence and conditions numbers are pretty good. If you look at the Roy Morgan survey, which no one does, the confidence numbers are a lot weaker than that, so you know, take your pick. Um, but you're right, it looks like consumers are a bit more pessimistic at the moment than businesses. Part of that might be that um, profitability across the business sector, not just the mining sector with commodity prices bouncing, but in the non-mining sector, that's that's improved. So that's good for you know perceived conditions and confidence. But on the other hand, we've got wages growth still kind of you know sputtering along really at pretty low rates. Um, a little bit more inflation at least at your headline level. So real wages growth has just gone back a tick. So household and households are looking at their debt and all those kinds of things, and their confidence has just come off a bit. So, you know, that might wash out um, going forward. But um, but at the moment, that doesn't seem to be a huge problem when it comes back to things like what it means for jobs at the minute. Yeah. Um, the other thing that businesses are, are really getting a kick from is public spending. 
public spending, and maybe we'll come back to this, but public spending... Oh, I think this is, is a really growing, interesting... It's yep. 23% of GDP, and it's been growing at um, 4 or 5% in real terms um, the last couple of years. I don't think anyone's really picked up on this. And a lot of that is flowing through directly into the, the jobs numbers and the wages numbers a little bit. Um, and a great, uh, a great great bit of upward pressure because I think if you look at the breakdown, um, the wage price index, uh, public sector is doing something like 2.3% yep. versus private at 1.8. Yeah, yeah, 40 basis points above. Yeah, well. Yeah. But a lot of it's bums on seats. So the, the last time we had industry employment data from the ABS, and we'll get it next week, but over the year to February, all of the increase was public employment, all over the last year. Wow. Now that gels with the breakdown of GDP numbers as well. So this rhetoric from the Commonwealth level about restraint, and they don't do most of the spending, it's the states that do most of the spending. The states, particularly Queensland, you saw it the other day, Victoria and New South Wales, at different kind of levels, they've come out and said, actually... There's not a lot of restraint at the moment, maybe in the out years, but not at the moment. Their spending's actually growing quite quickly. And I'm talking here about their consumption numbers, their wages. Yeah. But then on the back of that, the investment numbers are picking up pretty sharply. So, Obviously, a housing boom as well has, uh, has helped uh, yep. Victoria and New South Wales and, uh, and also the coal revenues as well from uh, from Queensland. We've seen recently the twin uh, price spikes have uh, obviously flown into the coffers as well. So that's no doubt helping. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting because, uh, you know, um, uh, I think when back in 2014, when you had the the hockey Abbott um, budget, which um, basically just cu- cut, they, they planned to cut spending too fast, um, planned to rein in spending too fast, and um, when the economy soft, um, you know, I think it's entirely reasonable for the government to be able to step in and cushion some of that blow, absorb some of it. Um, and you know, particularly if they're going to start, you know, pulling in welfare payments, um, you know, that is going to have flow-on effects, not just for the contraction in the um, in the government's con- contribution to the economy, but also then flow-on effects for the consumer sector, household consumption, etc., because um, people don't have as much, you know, uh, money flowing through their pockets. And we're not talking about um, only about people who are on the breadline here. We're talking about families getting family tax benefits, uh, childcare rebates, all that kind of stuff, um, which does help with household um, uh, spending and people's ability to sort of think that, well, we're kind of okay on the household budget uh, mm. on a day-to-day basis. And I think it has been interesting, this change we've seen now this year um, from the Turnbull government, which is, okay, we actually need to have, start having a sensible conversation or try and have a sensible conversation. Um, it is Canberra politics after all. But try and have a sen- sensible conversation about um, the role of borrow of the public sector borrowing um, in the economy. So, uh, to your point, um, you know, uh, this has been very supportive um, over the last few years. Yeah, definitely. I, I couldn't disagree more. And I think it's important to remember that it was probably only a year ago, or eighteen months ago, where a, f- a former governor. Um, and he's and he's and the now governor were both out there saying we could do with a bit more public spending in the economy. I think they were mainly talking about investment and productive investment, but um, just to take some of that pressure off monetary policy, which not everyone agrees with this, but it certainly has at least for a while taken a lot of the pressure off monetary policy to do more. And no one really, I think, could argue strongly that we've needed a lot of that over the past year because of what's been happening in the the housing market. Now that might change, but I think the mix between the macro policy levers, fiscal and monetary, it's been working better mm. over the past year than probably it was beforehand. Yeah. Um, and um, look, I think one of the things that I just want to cover off is a couple of quick 
uh, sectoral areas. Um, one is you've been doing some interesting. Um, you've had a. I saw some interesting research from you on the outlook for the retail sector. Um, second biggest employer, um, I believe, by industry after um, health. Um, but you've got this just this big drag, um, and this some of it is the Amazon effect, but obviously um, some of it this is um, down to households too. Yeah. Um, a little, a little known fact about the retail sector in terms of employment is uh, for about 10 years now, nearly 10 years, the level of employment in retail hasn't changed. It's gone up, it's gone down, but in net terms it hasn't changed. The economy's come through that okay. Now clearly there's this structural change that is happening in consumer spending and, and saving and the retail sector has had a big impact on the level of employment. Like, given it's the second biggest employer in, in terms of heads, you know, that's, that's actually something we've dealt with pretty well. For that not to have changed for a decade, that's, that's huge. You know, luckily, health's taken up the slack there. But um, I think the key one here is wages. Um, people talk about all these different things affecting consumer sentiment and spending and, and risk aversion, but the key one at the root of all this is wages. Even when people talk about the cost of living pressures, ultimately it comes down to what's happening with real wages growth. We know there's not a lot of inflation in the economy. So um, I guess our view on this one is that this is something that's not going to go away anytime soon. Um, the key reason for that is um, what's happened with the terms of trade and commodity prices. So to not overcomplicate things, basically... Since late 2011, when commodity prices started coming off, that's been a drag on our income as an economy. It's worked through different ways. And one important way is that um, real wages for households haven't increased since then. There's a clear link between those two things. Um, so after growing quite strongly for a decade, they haven't grown for now, what's that, five, five six years. That might be coming to an end over the next couple of years because the commodity prices, you know, fingers crossed, have probably troughed in the terms of trade have probably troughed looking through the volatility we've seen um, but really to get to get any meaningfully meaningful pickup in real wages growth over the next couple of years we're going to need a big spurt in productivity growth it's going okay at the moment but I don't know where that spurt comes from to get real wages growth picking up um, more than it has so we think this consumer story's got another probably couple of years to run yeah right yeah. Um, and where do you think the sources of productivity growth might be, the drivers of productivity growth might be? Yeah, well, I mean, you've seen it the last few years. Businesses have been doing everything they can to cut costs. So, you know, when, when your top line's getting um, hit, which has been happening not just here but overseas, um, you then look at what's happening with costs. And I think businesses have already made a significant amount of progress here on getting their cost bases down, restructuring. A lot of that's obviously through um, churning your labour market or making that more efficient, uh, bringing on better processes through either new equipment or methods. I reckon a lot of that's probably done. Mm. Going forward, um, this is where I'm not so hopeful, um, getting that impetus from the powers that be, i.e. our policymakers, um, things like competition reform and just better taxation, all those great things that improve productivity over a 10-year period. Mm. Now, where, where's that happening or where's that going to come from? I'm, I'm not hopeful at all that that happens. Um, until we have our next big shock to the economy. And even then, I don't know if the minds will be focused. Yeah, yeah. Um, it certainly is hard to see it um, coming from anywhere. You know, we see what's happening with – we've got this uh, the clean energy uh, target um, discussion happening in Canberra this week. And um, there's, you know, guys threatening to cross the floor and not vote, you know, vote against the government. And with the majority in the House um, being as slim as it is, um, it just makes the prospect of any sort of – reform significant economic reform where you might have 
um, a bit of internal detention within a party, um, it makes it, the prospects for that um, carrying uh, pr- pretty marginal. Yeah. yeah, and I think one of the I know there's political kind of constraints here with with the setup in um, Parliament at the moment, but one of the things I think, and we're partly to blame as voters, that I think uh, we've got this attitude now that there can't be any losers from reform. Yeah. Because yeah. for 15 to 20 years during the good times, whenever there was any decent reform, there hasn't been a lot, but even when there was, everybody was either overcompensated or um, you know some safety net was put there so no one went backwards. You can see it with the schools argument at the moment. I mean, exactly. You know, take a bit of money away from some schools that have been overpaid and, oh, my God, you can't do that. It's on the front page but of the paper. It's ridiculous. And they're well-funded already yeah. um, and they're just going to get less proportionately. Yeah. Um, and But it becomes, oh, my goodness, you know, and Turnbull at war with, you know, but this is a big problem, yeah. I think, going through all the policy debate, that the first thing they go is there cannot be losers. And voters then go, oh, there cannot be losers. So any good reform, yeah, you look at the ACT with the great reform they've made to stamp duty and land tax, the, the moaning from people who've had to pay a bit more, even though there's been compensation there in that scheme for the people that need it, the moaning is just unbelievable from people that are well off. Mm including a senior political correspondent for one of our newspapers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, they they anyway. won't be complaining if they have to go, have to go move to the ACT anytime soon and uh, they avoid the stamp duty, so I'm sure they'll be happy exactly. about that. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, I, I think that's a big problem, that this, yeah. this no, there can't be any losers is a big problem with our policy debate, and it's going to really hold back any meaningful productivity reform. Yeah. Just to my mind, the, the, the solution there is an election where you get a government returned with a significant mandate and if not control of both houses, um, a significant majority in the lower house and then uh, something that looks workable in the Senate. Um, and right now, um, I, you know, uh, you don't see that um, being a realistic prospect. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I hope you're right. Um, I'm pretty apolitical, so I'm not sure yeah. who gets that. Um, but I mean, the other issue is the lack of bipartisanship, I think, as well, mm. that, that's probably not too great. So I don't know. Under any scenario for the next five years, I'm not too hopeful we're going to see much improvement here. Yeah, and, and default uh, rejection of any of the other side's policies, even if they're uh, reasonable or, or sensible or whatever, you know. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, so, David, just quickly, uh, Justin mentioned um, uh, commodity prices there earlier. Um, it's been another rough week for, for iron ore. Oh, it has. I can keep your eyeballs in your socket from the, uh, the various gyrations from day to day. It's, uh, it's quite wild if you follow it as closely as, uh, as a lot of the people who go and read my iron ore stuff, which is, uh, is pretty granular in nature. Uh, iron ore obviously uh, fell to a more than 11-month low, uh, off about 44% from the highest seen earlier this year. Uh, coking coal's been uh, hit pretty hard as well. It's still sliding. So uh, in terms of the terms of trade, uh, obviously we're probably going to look at a pullback uh, not only in this quarter but potentially uh, maybe the next quarter as well. And it's interesting, at the same time this is happening, you know, people talk about maybe one of the things that will help drag the Australian dollar a bit lower would be falls in commodity prices, but uh, this will probably lead us nicely into the Fed. Um, but, um, uh, you know, iron ore has been tumbling, and the Aussie dollar is, I think, was trading this morning, uh, we're recording on Thursday, uh, trading this morning at uh, over 76 cents. Um, you know, um, and you'd expect something like 70 and below would be the, the, the kind of level where 
you might start to get some uh, imported inflation uh, through the weaker currency, all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah. it doesn't we've look like a, it's going to happen. We've got a much smaller current account deficit than what we used to run. And also, uh, that, that's been one contributing factor. Also, everyone forgets that there's been absolutely no volatility across financial markets. So mm-hmm. although uh, Australia's interest rates have, uh, have plumbed you know, all-time lows for us, uh, they're still comparatively higher to the rest of the world, and it still encourages that carry trade. Uh, people going borrowing uh, in lower uh, lower interest rate jurisdictions like uh, you know, Japan, the Eurozone, and then going buy high-yielding assets in Australia. Um, that's also exacerbated. You've seen that the, uh, volatility has been incredibly low over the past month, and that just happens to have coincided with the huge rally we've seen in the Aussie. I think uh, about 4, 4% uh, when I looked uh, this morning. So that probably goes somewhere to explain it as well. Yeah, interesting. Um, we saw pretty good from the Fed. Um, pretty big uh, rally in U.S. Treasuries, uh, and uh, although this may not have been tied to the Fed because it looks like that was priced in, but there was a big rally overnight in uh, U.S. Treasuries and um, and Australian bonds. And amazingly, it's two point three percent now on the Australian ten year. Do uh, I think two point three and a half, which is kind of where it was um, on the day Donald Trump was elected, and you had this yield explosion that sort of um, you know in in assets like that um, that they sort of reverberated around the world and carried on for months afterwards and now it looks like it's completely unwound. It is completely unwound and obviously uh, the US Federal Reserve is essentially the central bank of the central banks Uh, it sets basically the cost of money around the world having the reserve currency now when you see their bond yields have been falling Australia's bond yields have been falling as well Uh, up until recently Sands, the uh, really strong uh, employment report today. We're seeing that Australian data has been a little bit iffy as well, so that's gone in and contributed to that decline as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Justin, um, looking at the Fed, um, so 1.25%, um, the slow uh, path to quote unquote normalization. Uh, continues. Yeah, whatever um, that means. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just about 3%, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so you say. Yeah, that's, what, that's what they're saying. So. <laughs> um, look, uh, how do you, when, when you look at the US economy at the moment, um, what do you see when you, what do you, what do you think are the, the, the key issues for you there? Um, well, it depends what you mean. They've got a massive structural issue about inequality, but I don't think you mean that. Um, I think in a cyclical sense, you see that things have slowed up a bit um, in recent times. But part of it, I don't, I don't think people should be too scared of that because they're, they're generating enough jobs, more than enough jobs still, even though it's a bit slower, um, to keep the unemployment rate slowly trickling down, measures of unemployment falling. So so that's great news. Um, their inflation, yeah, look through the, the noise from commodity prices. Their inflation numbers have um, trended higher, even though they've They've kind of stalled a bit um, more recently, so that there is a question mark over that. Um, but really, I mean, they couldn't have asked for anything better in terms of the improvement in their economy over the last 10 years after they nearly annihilated the thing. So, <laughs> yeah. so you know, um, a lot of people are critical of the Fed if we look at the Fed, but but really they were kind of learning by doing, doing stuff that no one had done before. I mean, yeah, the Japanese had done it, but really this was different this time. The whole world was doing what they've been doing. So very different times. They've probably been a bit lucky. The economy looks pretty good. I think now you've got an unemployment rate of, what is it, 4.7 four, four, or 4.6? No, it's below 4.5. Four, four, yeah, so, yeah. you know, that's that's not at the lows that they've reached before. They've, you know, they've had a three in front of it, but um, so there's a bit of spare capacity there, but you, you wouldn't think there's a lot. So you expect as you approach that kind of, you know, potential output or whatever you want to call it, that the economy does slow up a bit and it just comes up. But... But that's okay because globally, 
growth has picked up a bit, and and the Fed, uh, the US, sorry, doesn't have to be driving things as hard as as they had from Australia's perspective. So. Yeah. Yeah. In the groove a bit for the moment, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know they've got a bit of bit of uh, room to grow more. You know, we've seen these um, the the monthly jobs data there adding sort of six figure job creation levels uh, on a regular basis, a hundred hundred thousand jobs plus uh, on a monthly basis. They've got a bit bit more to go um, before they start to maybe um, get some tightness in there. I think one of the really interesting things is um, a Trump is looking at all this uh, stimulus. Um, Fiscal napalm, I suppose. If he managed, to, if he got, if he, if he was able to do everything that he wanted, uh, you'd be talking about a giant level of investment, um, uh, public sector investment in uh, in the U.S. economy. But mm. but where would all the workers come from? Um, you know, not uh, Mexico. No, not Mexico. <laughs> yeah. um, and I doubt he'd, he'd, he'd want many of them from Canada, uh, or the, the, the way things are going, that a lot of Canadians would would want to want to move down and feel welcome. Um, in their neighbor's place. but uh, So I, I think that is an interesting question. If they do manage to get all these big, big projects, big road projects, um, you know, building new airports, new rail, and new ports, um, if they've got unemployment, uh, which would be, you know, you can imagine in a year's time, if they keep going like they're going, it'll be down somewhere around 4.0. Mm. Um, where would they get the workers and how would they actually make that happen without a big, you know, surge in inflation and, um, and fundamentally changing the, changing the picture? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things there. One, one is if they were able to get all this supposed infrastructure spending happening anytime soon, and they won't. I'll come back to that. That that they've got a bit of headroom on inflation, so they're a bit lucky there. That their starting point in terms of the pricing pressures, let alone what's happening in the labour market, is is, is fortuitous for them. Um, but you look at Australia's experience here. We've been talking about infrastructure spending for how many years now, and not just not just a debate about it, but actually stuff that's been in train, it takes years yeah. to get going. Now, the Yanks are a pretty dynamic bunch, but it, they can't be that much more dynamic um, than us. Maybe they get things done a bit more quickly. But where's the list of things that needs to be done in the US? Like everyone knows the airports need more work, but just talking about it doesn't get it done. You actually have to go through the processes of planning, getting businesses in to do this, contracting, all this stuff. You know, Trump just can't get his army of workers in from his businesses and, and do it, right? So this is going to take a long time. So my guess is that given we're now well into an expansion in the US, that given the business cycle is not dead, that they're going to talk about this for a long time. By the time you actually start to get some impetus to growth from any infrastructure spending that happens, um, they might get lucky and it might be, it might be um, counter-cyclical. If it happened right now, it would be very pro-cyclical mm. and, and that would be probably bad. So you want it to be counter-cyclical, this infrastructure spending. They might get lucky. There. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And just the, the idea of, you know, you can't shut down airports like Newark and, and JFK. You've got to manage around them, which means that if you want to improve them, and God, they need improvement. You know, I think there's a very good competition between which city, Sydney or, um, or New York, has the absolute worst airport in the world. Um, I think Sydney, you know, make a pretty good fist of it. No, no one will beat us for our parking fees. <laughs> no, that's, that's dead right. I think even, you know, just going to pick somebody, uh, uh, somebody up at the airport costs you 25 bucks or something. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, you know, you can't shut down those airports just because just so much uh, comes through them on a daily basis. So there's a big, you know, long-term management plan involved in that and there's all the planning process that you've got to go through. And I think so it's a, it's a very good point, Justin. Yeah, even if he does manage to secure the funding, 
uh, actually getting the gains from it is maybe a decade away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the midterm elections are coming up next year as well. Mm. You got to remember that. So the window to go and start even just rolling out any of these plans uh, and, and actually uh, discussing specific items that need to be done. The window is narrowing. That's why you're seeing the US dollars coming off, why you're seeing US bond yields are going lower, because the market is slowly becoming to the reality that, hey, all these you know, big spending promises that were promised before the uh, the election uh, may not actually come to fruition. Yeah, um, it, it's, it's, it's certainly going to be interesting. And also, it is the Trump presidency. So um, I think we can guarantee there'll be some surprises uh, from time to time along the that, way. That's one of the biggest issues as well, is that there's been so many distractions that you know, the whole talk about policy and the need to implement uh, this infrastructure plan has been lost because it's talking about Russians and this trip and who he met where and what. Like it's That stuff is just you know, constantly whirling around in the background. It's not allowing you to actually you know, move on and do what they are they intend to do. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, it's fascinating. Um, now, just quickly, I uh, want to look at one thing, uh, very important, back here in Australia. Um, Justin, uh, we've seen uh, auction clearance rates steadily falling um, last few weeks, uh, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. Yep. Um, I think this will probably be something that a lot of people were sort of on the policy side were hoping to see, mm. a little bit of heat coming out. Um the uh, banks have been uh, increasing, you know, controls and, and in some cases stopping new in, uh, uh, loans to investors. Um, so it looks like that activity is visibly slowing down. Can I ask you what? Uh, how do you see this is playing out? Um, because mm. clearly some heat needed to be taken out. Um, how do you see, in terms of what the high-frequency data is telling us, how do you see this is, uh, is progressing? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the incoming data, you're, you're right. The best real-time real time indicators of what's happening is the, the auction clearance rates, at least in Sydney and Melbourne, um, not, not broader than that. Um, they Some of that weakness is seasonal. Um, the, the, around this time of year, you do get a bit of seasonality in the numbers, but even accounting for that, which I've had a crack at, the, the, the clearance rates have come down. Um, you know, nationally speaking, uh, a reasonable amount. But th- they're still at levels that during normal times, well, not during normal times, would, would still be consistent with pretty solid house price growth. Um, now, what's happening with house prices, who, who knows with some of the, the issues with some of the, the measures, but it looks like in at least Sydney they've kind of broadly flattened out. It looks to me, again, there's a lot of seasonality in those numbers, but it looks to me that in we're in June, halfway through this month, that we'll probably get a, a fall even after the seasonal influences um, in uh, in Sydney uh, and, and maybe more broadly than that at the national level. So that's okay. Don't be scared of house price falls. Um, we've had a lot of them in the past. Um, you know, a couple of months here, a couple of months there. During bad times, they fall even more than that, up to 10%. You go to Perth, they're falling a lot more. It's indicative of what's happening. But you know, the, these calls for calling the top of the market when people talk about growth, wow, that's a massive call. You know, mm. Price growth in Sydney and Melbourne was between 15 and 20% at its peak not that many months ago. Yeah, yeah. Somebody's got to say stop at yeah, that point. Yeah, yeah. I would have been stunned if it went higher than that um, given what's happened with income growth and all that. So so calling growth as topping out is just a, a wuss's call. Really, anyone could have called that. Now, what do, do prices actually fall in outright terms? I think they probably will in the near term, at least in Sydney, but that's okay. Mm. So one of the dynamics we're seeing here, though, is you're dead right that some of the investors are coming out of the market. I think my, my, I'm kind of somewhat in the market at the moment, so I'm getting a lot of intel myself in yeah, my right. inbox from real estate agents and, and chats, and across the board they're saying things have cooled 
um, and, and the, they're being a lot more proactive now looking for business so that the buyer demand has cooled right off mm. around Sydney and it's not just investors, it's, it's owner-occupiers too because I ask them um, and they go, oh, well, investors aren't in this segment of the market, it's owner-occupiers. So I think when people talk about this fear of missing out a couple of months ago, I think there was an yeah. element of that in the market. Now, that's, that's transitory, right? Yeah, that's, yeah. So that's, that has cooled down. What the regulators are doing is probably helped um, prompt this a bit, I think. Um, now, how much of it's natural? A lot of it's probably natural. You can't yeah. run at 15 20% house price growth, right? Yeah. So uh, my guess is going forward, uh, it's probably more a hope than anything, is that this is not good for anyone except for investors who own more than one property. Um, so I think hopefully a period of negligible dwelling price growth in Sydney particularly, uh, maybe Melbourne, would be a good thing for everybody um, for even a year or two. Mm. I, I, I do want to share with you just um, thinking about real estate agents and so on. I saw, you know, these sort of small, schmickly produced um, promotional videos for a particular agency or a group of, uh, of agents. Um, and it was these guys. I, look, I won't name them because it's too embarrassing. But um, there was this guy and part of the scene was... Of course, we've had some uh, major news events around the world um, in 2016. It was around about Christmas. And uh, he's sitting there and he's in you know blue trousers, brown shoes, no socks. Um, and uh, he's sitting there explaining, you know, we've had the major news events of the, of the year around the world. We've had some major news events. We've had the election of Donald Trump and, of course, Brexit. While here in New South Wales, we've had changes to the accountability measures for real estate agents. <laughs> I mean, sure, just go from, you know, earth-shattering geopolitical events to uh, m- minor regulatory uh, changes for the real estate industry because clearly um, that was as big as Trump in, in their world. Um, uh, Dave, just on that uh, seasonality, uh, you have you did a chart a couple of weeks ago, which is great. Just point out this little May, sort of June period that we get from time to time. Um, in, in fact, I think stretching back several years now. Six years. Yeah, that's, Six that's, years, that's, yeah, yeah. And I must say that it's, uh, I'm not going to take credit for the chart. It was Core Logic who I came up with the chart. Uh, but it just showed that uh, no, there was generally, generally a seasonal lull that you saw around May before picking up again. Um, but looking at uh, the figures we're seeing in, uh, in June, as Justin alluded to as well, um, that weakness that we saw in May is now extended into uh, the first half of June. So there's every likelihood that you might see you know, a prolonged period of, of flatline or maybe even God help us, negative growth for uh, for a little period of time. But uh, anyone who's uh, is owned Sydney, even for like the last two years, would not be uh, concerned by that whatsoever. That's right. That's right. Because you'd be, you know, um, fifteen plus percent compounded over a couple of years. Um, so you're kind of doing all right. Um, you know, so a pullback of a few percentage points is uh, you're not going to sweat it, right? And, and let's let's um, remember the last couple of years, investors have been accounting for something like. 50, 55% of um, new housing finance in New South Wales, so higher in Sydney. Um, not quite that high in Melbourne, but the numbers have been rocketing higher. So having that pullback is good for everybody. And it, don't forget about the humble owner-occupier or person trying to get in the market, not just the first home buyer, but but other normal people who aren't screwing the taxpayer um, to um, you know to get housing well. So when we've seen this in the numbers... That the, the housing finance numbers for owner occupiers, for those looking to actually build a place or, or buy a new place, they're still trending higher. 
So that's that's good news that that balance is coming back into the market. Now, politicians obviously aren't going to talk about that because they don't want to do anything about housing investors or nothing more than around the edges. But for the vast bulk of people out there who aren't investors, so 85% of households, I think this more normalness in the housing market will be well-received over time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a really good point. Um, okay, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, you've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week has been Justin Fabo, Senior Economist at uh, Alpha Beta, an economic consultancy here in uh, Sydney. Justin, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights. That's good fun. Thanks, guys. Uh, and also on the show, David Scott. Thank you, Paul. And uh, just a quick, I know, uh, for those who don't, make sure you follow Justin on Twitter because he's one of the gurus when it comes to charts. You know, if you like charts, you know, this is your man. So people go and talk up me and say, like, oh, your charts are great and everything. No, trust me, I'm an absolute Padawan compared to this man. So make sure you follow him on Twitter. Uh, actually, I do want to call out one. Um, was it this week? Um, floor space, floor space under construction in China yeah. against the iron ore price. Yeah. It was a pretty amazing fit. Yeah, you would have seen it before. But anyway, I'd, I'd like to show you some favourites. Another one being Macau Gaming Revenue Growth, another great fit with Chinese data. So follow that closely. Yeah, right. Probably the most timely data you'll get, actually, Macau Gaming Revenue. And so, yeah, no, I love a chart and um, have a bit of fun. I'll take requests as well. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so Justin Fabo on, is on Twitter, as is David Scott, and you can find me, uh, Paul Colgan, on there as well. Um, you can find the show on iTunes where you can rate us and leave us a review. We're on the web at businessinsider.com.au or on Twitter. Uh, too, um, for um, the website overall at BIAUS. The show's been produced by Rick Salter. Thanks, and we'll catch you next time. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.